Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. I'm here today with my favorite scruffy-looking nerf herder, Justice. What's up, guys? I actually shaved, though, so like I'm not that scruffy-looking at the moment. You got the scruff, but not like the overwhelming Gandalf right now, oh, yeah. um, which is disappointing. But <laughs> body hair aside, we have some friends of the podcast. Guys, you asked for them to come back. Comic Book Couples Counseling, Brad and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. People were asking for us to return? You sure that wasn't right? just us emailing you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, we put all kinds of fake accounts, you know, just got to pump up those numbers. <laughs> but for the people who haven't uh, listened to our previous episode, one, this is our shameless plug for our own crap for the episode. Go back and listen to it. We go over the Enneagrams with Padme and Anakin and talk about all the awkwardness and wonderfulness of their relationship. But for those who haven't listened, Brad, Lisa, can you guys kind of give a little short intro of what your podcast is and what you guys can offer? Absolutely. Now, Lisa, I think on the last time we guessed it on Pod Wars, you gave the description. I did. So why don't I give it a shot? Yeah, you take the little right. sweet. Uh, so comic book couples counseling, uh, it involves uh, Brad and Lisa, and uh, we're married. We've been married for over a decade, so that's a big win. Uh, and what we do every week on our show is pair a comic book couple like um, Scott and Jean from The Uncanny X-Men or Miyamoto Usagi and the lady uh, Tomoe Ame from Usagi Yojimbo, and we pair them with a self-help guide, uh, a relationship guru like the Five Love Languages or the Enneagram. Uh, and uh, we use that self-help guru because they're the experts. Lisa and I, I know, so having survived a decade, I, I think we know we're a, a lot. We're experts in being married to each other. That's right. We're experts in being married to each other, but we're not necessarily, you know, doctors of psychology uh, by any means. Neither are all of our love gurus. That's true. Sometimes they're <laughs> quacks. Um, but uh, we, we use those self-help guides to uh, help us analyze those fictional relationships. And in analyzing those fictional relationships, hopefully we learn something about ourselves and how we can apply that to our own uh, coupling. I think you nailed it. Did I? Five stars. Okay, good. Good. I was oh, suddenly I nervous. I was like staring at you. I was like, am I doing this right, Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> I generally like to mention Swamp Thing and Abby. Like when I'm doing my little thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I included with, DC couple. I go with Scott and Jean because they were our first couple. Mm -hmm. And then Miyamoto and Tomoe because they were not our most recent, but the one we the most recent one where we finished an entire like four episode arc on. Mm. And, and you know, I, I like rabbits. And Gary, you really liked the um that arc, didn't you? I, I really liked uh, Usagi Ujimbo. I tried to start at the beginning, and I'm kind of working my way through the just immensity of material yeah. that uh, Stan Sakai has. There is a lot. Um, but it's all great stuff. Like, at first, you just think, hey, this is a bunny with a top knot. That's adorable. And then he, like, kills a bunch of people, and then there's ritual suicide. And you're like, 
damn, this is a lot more than a bunny with a top knot. Yep, yep. It, uh, that's what I did last year. Is I, I had read some Usagi Yojimbo throughout my comic obsession, um, but last year, 2020, pandemic hits, and I'm like, I'm going to start from the beginning, and I'm going to read every single Stan Sakai comic book. And uh, I accomplished that. And I think after having done that, that Stan Sakai is without a doubt one of the masters of the form. You know, it takes him maybe like 20 issues, 25 issues of Usagi Ojimbo to like fully solidify. But once he does, like he has been perfect since. There are no bad Usagi Ojimbo comics. It's crazy. Man, you're making me really want to dive into this uh, Usagi Ojimbo. And so I am uh, super psyched. I, I'm probably going to go to the comic book store and probably pick up a couple of trades. So uh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. That's my mission. I like but, to curate and I like to get people to read Usagi Yojimbo. Because I think like Usagi Yojimbo is one of those characters where he's been around for 35 plus years and we kind of take for granted because, you know, you feel like, well, I didn't get into him early on and now there's so much material. It's a little intimidating. It's like when you throw like the X-Men at somebody like, uh, well, I like the movies, but where do I start? Oh my gosh, there's so much. And you need like a little help to like navigate the X-Men. But with Usagi Ojimbo, you literally can pick up anywhere and he gives you enough like character clues and plot cues for you to like pick up and start from the most recent comics or halfway through the run or a third of the way through the run, you do not need to start at the beginning. Though I suggest starting with Grass Cutter yeah. because that gives you a good sense of some of the characters. It's a really exciting story. You also get a little bit of his love story with Lady Tomoy, who I consider them to be the OTP. I know yeah. he's a rabbit. He's been with other bunnies. And That's other non-bunnies. Facts of life. Yep. Um, but yeah, that's a great place to start. But speaking of great places to start, let's dive into a little bit of some of your recent work. You guys just released an episode on The Vision by Tom King, if I remember yes. correctly, right? Yes. And how that basically just inspired the recent episodes of WandaVision in some large ways. Yes. So to start out, before we dive into Han and Leia, we have to talk a little bit of WandaVision. What did you guys think of those first two episodes? Hold on, guys. Spoilers for those of you who haven't seen the two episodes, please pause this, go and watch it, and then come back and enjoy because we are about to dive pretty deep and then get into this and then get into Han and Leia. But yeah, I'm super excited to talk about WandaVision right now. So full disclosure, Lisa and I have actually seen the first three episodes of WandaVision. Da, da, da. Uh, but we will not spoil the third episode for you. Uh, I, I'm currently covering the series for Film School Rejects. I'm handling all their weekly recaps. So I got a little bit of a jump on those episodes. Um, and I'm so glad because uh, I'm loving WandaVision. I don't know what you guys feel like, but I think it's pretty darn special. Uh, I texted my parents today and because they're huge like MCU fans. And I was like, you guys need to go on my Disney Plus account and you need to watch this because if you want to understand the movies, then you got to start watching these TV shows. And I'm like, it's phenomenal. It's great. Like they, I think the acting above all else is, is just it's just a plus. It's so good. Um, and then. I'm not a big fan of ninety or uh, uh, of fifty sitcom, but I thought they did a really good job of nailing that aesthetic and also kind of like making fun of those trope, like natural tropes in the fifty sitcoms. I am a huge fan of sixties 
all things 60s and 70s. And so to watch um, the newlywed couple of Vision and Wanda cross the threshold right into Dick Van Dyke's apartment, like the confusion and the nostalgia of that first episode was so unsettling in the best possible way. And the idea that they committed to this conceit that, uh, you know, they're two sitcom characters now. And what does this mean for the entire first episode? And and almost for the entire second episode. I thought that it was surprising and brave. And I love that the MCU is so confident to be so bizarre with us. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, that production design, the way that they recreated Dick Van Dyke's place is was, like, shocking. And then to go into the second episode and the way that they recreated the world of Bewitched was unbelievable. Like, I... Th- 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 I would love to talk to so many people involved in the making of WandaVision, but the number one person I want to talk to is their production designer. Mm-hmm. Like, they did their homework. It is, I mean, it it felt like they stepped back in time to shoot those early episodes. I feel like we just got another person for us to stalk until they come on the show, Justice. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> But yeah, I loved the whole aesthetic of it. It was great because um, my wife admits that she is not an MCU fan that much. She thinks it can kind of verge on cheesy, which hurts my heart. <laughs> but she was watching it and she was uh, uh, loving it because she was a fan of I Love Lucy growing up. And it really plays on the people who grew up with that. But also, if you didn't grow up with it, the little like creepy edge I think is very attractive yeah so that's what I want to pick up on there is yes like I told my parents look you guys love Dick Van Dyke you love Bewitch you love all these old sitcoms I think you will get a lot out of WandaVision but if you are already invested in the MCU what you get out of the first two episodes of WandaVision is how incredibly dark the show actually is that there is this Mm -hmm. undercurrent of sadness and um, denial. denial and grief and loss that is happening in those first two episodes that they're only barely hinting at, but behind like every smile you see in that show is like a scream mm. and uh, waiting to get out. And wait, you know, as an audience, we we're like, well, we saw what happened to Vision in Infinity War. Um, things did not go well for him. So how did he get here? We have some understanding of Wanda's capabilities. Um, w- what is her role in all of this? So like the, all of that is great. And then if you're like at all familiar with the comic books, the level of Easter eggs that they have put through those first two episodes to offer you clues as to what might actually be happening is really, really in, in enjoyable, delectable. Yeah, those the like those clues are with sword being introduced and the different types of villains that they might be teasing is also really intriguing. But those two commercials are yes. something that I like keep on going back to and it's and I've I've watched a couple of like Easter egg YouTube videos on it and it, it really is I think it's her kind of trying to subconsciously deal with the trauma that she's gone through as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I Again, like you were saying, the Easter eggs in there, I didn't realize how many there were until yeah. I like started really diving deep into Same, it. same. Because I mean, like, there are some really insane ones that are hiding in the background that uh, I totally missed on my first couple of watches. 
And, and you know, like those commercials, I think that second commercial in the second episode is incredibly important where they're advertising the Strucker watch. Mm. And, you know, it says Hydra made. And it's not just like a Hydra watch. It's a Strucker or a Strucker watch. And they're not going to say Strucker unless they're, they're going to explore that a little bit more. And Strucker, of course, you know, if you've seen Winter Soldier, if you've seen Age of Ultron, he's the dude who was um, in charge of the genetic enhancements that ga- that gifted Pietro and Wanda their abilities. And so I think it's going to tie into that a little bit. Um, you know, the, you know the, the, not only the loss of the vision in Infinity War, but also the loss of her brother Pietro, I think is going to play a significant role. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm very excited to see where it goes. I, like, what intrigues me the most is where we get to see the seams of where reality is eking into Wanda's magical reality, where we have the bright red helicopter, the beekeeper coming from underneath the pavement, and and watching reality be translated by her magics, and um, we've now, mm, I don't know if this is a spoiler, so, but that excites me very much, and I, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I want to maintain the weirdness for as long as possible. I want to see, I, I want it to get way weirder. I, I don't think this is a show where, like, you know, in episode three and four, we're, we're gonna, back. We're back at, um, you know, MCU land. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, we, I, we know you've seen the commercials for the show. There are other sitcoms that this series is going to be aping beyond Dick Van Dyke mm-hmm. and Bewitched and I Love Lucy and all that. And so we're going to see some other uh, sitcom role play in the future. And I mean, that's that's also just as enjoyable as anything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. And and I think um, the like you said earlier, Gary, the the edginess where like um, when you know he Hart Mister Hart is choking on the sausage and like she's like telling him her to stop and it, it just like that part is so insanely like I don't it just like it gave me a little chills watching it and then when the the beekeeper guy comes out of the storm gate or or so the storm sewer and. Uh, she like rewinds time and yeah. like that that scene again was also in, in like very creepy to me there's just a lot of things going on and I just also want to mention that uh, Deborah Rupp and what I'm sorry what is her name Catherine Hand oh yeah such yeah. a great job of acting like uh, Deborah is perfect for that role because of that 70s show but like anything that Catherine's in I feel like she's just like just molds so well into whatever like she, role she's in. Yeah, and I think we're going to uh, see a lot more of her. And you don't get somebody like her to play like the nosy neighbor unless there's something else going on. And I'm, I'm yeah, I, yeah, tantalizing, tantalizing. And the I- fact that she's playing Aggie, and for those of us who have read other um, Wanda. Uh, Scarlet Witch comics, or even have just re- recently read the Tom King run, we know that Agnes is a very important name in Wanda Maximoff's life. Yeah. So I can't wait to see where that character goes. Yeah, I know you can't say much, but third episode, did you like it? Thumbs so far up. Um, well, I guess we can say that it goes into like that next era it of goes, television. It goes into the 70s, yeah. So aesthetically, I'm like totally there. Um, There's more of those hijinks, 
But there is also more of the bleed of reality and fantasy and magic. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed the first two episodes, but honestly, I was not sold on the show until the third episode. Uh, and... Um, and because of that bleed, uh, the little extra bleed that we get. I think it was so smart of them to put out two episodes to start because that first episode, as part of a triptych of these first three episodes, is really wonderful, but it does not give up a lot. I mean, Th- yeah. That first episode yeah. commits hard, and I can imagine watching that first episode and going like, I have to wait a week for another episode. I don't know how to feel, yeah. you know? I think those first two episodes play really, really mm. well together. Yeah. And I also think strategically, too, um, there's supposed to be nine episodes, and I think uh, Winter Soldier and Falcon come out in March, and so it it works well. Where I think there might be like only a week in between before that episode or that TV show picks up. So like having them play those two episodes really benefited them to make sure there's no overlap for that other TV show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're going to be getting like nonstop MCU for like the rest of the year. And you That's know fine. what? My body's ready. Yeah, my body's I need ready. some MCU. Yeah. <laughs> I've felt hapless, hopeless, <laughs> drifting through I mean, life. Comics has only been like the one saving me from not getting a whole year of MCU. So yeah, I'm same, totally fine. same big time. <laughs> and it actually keeps the subscribers going for Disney Plus because we all know the post-Mando syndrome is definitely a It's thing. real. <laughs> it's real. That's for sure. But, okay. We, we have to start moving on to our couple <laughs> of the episode here. Um, WandaVision has so much in there, but today we're talking some Han and Leia. Now, we talked a little bit before about your guys' relationship with Star Wars and the prequels. Original trilogy, what is kind of your relationship with that and with Han and Leia themselves as a couple? You can go first, sweetheart. Um, well, so uh, for those that uh, d- did not uh, tune in to the last time we guessed it on here, like I am, uh, as much as I love the MCU, Star Wars was my first love. And it's impossible for me to watch those movies and not feel totally overcome by a warm, nostalgic childhood feeling. Uh, they were the first movies I ever saw. They were the first movies I ever saw in the theater. Um, They were the first toys I ever really purchased and played with. They were the first comics I ever bought. They were the first novels I ever bought. Like, I am... I am in it for Star Wars. Star Wars is my thing. Uh, And those original trilogy films... Like, where do I fall on them? I'm, a, I'm the guy who's like, Empire Strikes Back is the best. Uh, a New Hope's my second favorite. Return of the Jedi is my third favorite. But honestly, like, you know, you, get, I, I'll, I'll, uh, uh, the, the, the divide between them is very, very thin. Um, and, so, and they have all been my favorite Star Wars movie at one point or another in my life. But right now, Empire Strikes Back. And as far as like the, the Han and Leia relationship... Um, it's one of those things because Star Wars has always been with me. I've never judged it. I've always just accepted it as is. And this time watching it in preparation for this show was the first time we kind of, I ever applied sort of the method that we use on our podcast to this relationship and to really look at like what's healthy about the relationship, what's maybe not so healthy about the relationship. Are they a good fit? Um, you know, should they not have gotten together, blah, blah, blah. And 
and it was fun to re-watch this trilogy with this podcast in mind. Um, but as far as like, how do I feel about them as a couple? Well, they're a couple. And so that's, they've always been a couple in my head and they always will be a couple in my head. Uh, so yeah. Um, when I was growing up, I did watch the original trilogy, but it was not the eye-opening life changer to me that it was to baby Brad. Yeah. I was very much <laughs> like the Muppet movies, Disney princesses. Um, I like a musical number. I like a handsome prince. The monkeys. And I like the monkeys. The monkeys I didn't I did not get into until middle school. Weird. Let's get let's get my <laughs> my life story correct. Um, did you watch the special edition then? Uh, I mean so like this time we watched a special edition. We do have a despecialized DVD edition of it that we could watch. Uh, but today we just threw on our Blu-rays. I you know, I don't think Lisa has any um or, or her animosity towards the special edition is not as intense as mine is. Because um, my memories of watching Star Wars, like the original, unedited, perfect version, I didn't watch it religiously like you did. I didn't have it memorized. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't necessarily, like, Brad was like, this This is not uh, the Emperor's face. And I was just like, and and I was like, well, what did it look like before? And so he brought up a, 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 screen, cap. a screen cap of it. I'm like, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Say what you're going to say. Sorry. I did remember, like, as a little girl, I didn't understand why Leia would choose Han over Luke. Because I was like, Luke is like, Blonde hair, blue eye, he's kind of got a mop of hair. Like, I was like, if you're going to say that one of them is handsome, clearly Luke is more handsome. You're and I crazy. And I remember my sister going like, <laughs> yeah, but they're brother and sister. And then I'm like, but are they? Because I totally saw them kiss on the mouth more than one time. Like, you know, so I... I was kind of creating my own canon where I'm just like, they're not really brother and sister. They are truly meant to be together. So gross. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there are shippers out there on the interweb, kind of like the Raylos who ship uh, who ship Luke and Leia. And they're an odd group that nobody really no, wants to No, nobody to. wants to I, talk to those people. I, and I, I you know, and, and with my adult mind, I know fully that they are not meant to be but, together because uh, twins, twins getting it on is gross. You know that back in 1983, when it was revealed that Leia and Luke were brother and sister, there was a section of the fandom that lost their mind. Oh, I'm sure. Well, there there is like actual magazines that are like, are they or are they not going to get together? Um, but those fans that are shipping them, Gary, I think they're all in Alabama at the moment, so... <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to our Alabama listeners. Ooh, that's some shade. I no. love Alabama. <laughs> okay, so is controversial that, that thought. I'm not sure. <laughs> controversial thought that I'd like to ask you guys. So I'm of the camp that Han and Leia, all the kind of bashing you give on Padme and Anakin can apply to Han and Leia. The only thing that redeems it is that one, Harrison Ford's a good actor, and two, they had actual sexual tension. Mm. Um, cause you look at the actual lines they had to say, like you scruffy looking nerf herder, like, oh, go ahead, laser brain. They're cheesy as hell. 
uh, but they somehow redeem it. Okay, what are you guys' thoughts with that? I mean, I mean yeah, I everything, comes, <laughs> everything comes across good when you're on cocaine, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that does add a sense of urgency to uh, all things. But I mean, like, there, it, like if you look at the first film, Star Wars, um, I mean, the, the, the dialogue is really cheesy in that first film. Uh, and, and the actor who rises above the three is Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford really makes those lines work. Uh, uh, and, 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 um, you know, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill do too, but Harrison Ford feels the most comfortable and actually Alec Guinness feels like really comfortable, which is hilarious knowing like how much he despised the script. Um, but then you get into Empire Strikes Back and I think all of them are performing, uh, even better. And I think the dialogue is improved from the first movie as well. Um, but you know, that dialogue is still present in the prequels and the actors they have in the prequels and the director they have in the prequels does no favors to the dialogue. And it doesn't help that you can clearly see Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman have zero kind of chemistry at all whatsoever. Yeah, none. And, yeah, and I mean... Han or Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher did have a short affair, so they do have some degree of true real life chemistry. That's and you could feel it. There you could feel it. You could definitely tell. Okay, before we dive into some of the deeper analysis stuff, I'd like to go into some positive aspects of the relationship. So, what do you think from Han and Leia's relationships are aspects that one could consider healthy and good things? They created Ben Solo. No. <laughs> Is that really a healthy and good thing? They created a genocidal maniac. Oops. <laughs> With great hair. He turned out fine at the end. Uh, just like Anakin. Did he though? <laughs> you go, Lisa. To me, I think that um, their first bond was like the meeting of two complementary defense mechanisms because they, like, Leia as a a royal, like, doesn't want people, she doesn't want to get too close to people. And she also has to be respected as this diminutive woman. And so she, ha when she has her guards up, she gets bantery, she gets bickery, she gets direct. And Han has created an entire existence based on being, a, being able to pick up and leave. So he is also a person who 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 wants distance. So he has also um, he also has worked on his kind of acerbic wit. So when they finally um, come together, they have this match of wits that they find kind of electric. I think that they find each other um, challenging in a way that is ultimately attractive. Yeah, I mean, like the, their chemistry is so intense. Um, and, and, and that is rare, like, especially to have a couple that within minutes of meeting each other in such an extreme, uh, circumstances they have as they're trying to bust out of the Death Star jail. Um, e even in those moments where they're a little more antagonistic, there is, there is, an, to use Lisa's word, an electricity. And that's something that is, uh, you know, it's it's rare, but when you have it, it's it it it, it is, it's it's um it's it's healthy. It's, it's healthy. It's palpable. It's palpable, but it's also something you would seek in a relationship. Like you do need that. You don't need it twenty four seven necessarily, mm -hmm. but you do need it 
one of those hours of the day. I think in a more uh, serious note, I think uh, something that's positive is like they they have or it took Han a little bit longer to get to this point, but they both have a common goal. And a lot of times that's, you know, having similar philosophies is a very beneficial thing in a relationship and, um, you know, something that they can both get behind. It, it, it took Han a little bit to come to the rebel side and, you know, fight for him. But I mean, being two and zero against a Death Star is pretty good. And like, you know, having that um, that chemistry, being able to like, you know, he sees her vision and he wants to come and help her and, uh, um, you know, accomplish that, at least in the original trilogy, you know, that you can't be, that, and I guess it can't really be said for the sequel trilogy. Well, well, we'll definitely talk about the sequel trilogy, but like, I think what's interesting about what you're saying there is that they don't necessarily have the same goal for a long time, but what's healthy about the relationship is that they do start to morph and adapt to the other person's goals and ideas so by the third film in return of the jedi watching it this time when it's revealed that han is going to lead a, a, a group into endor or the forest moon of endor and and take and and take down the shields leia is surprised and elated and han's doing that because he's finally he wants to be with her. This is her mission. He wa- he has joined the fight, and it took a while, but he's here, and he has changed, and that's an incredibly powerful thing. Not enough people change. A lot of people get into relationships, and they're, you know, you met me this way. You knew who I was when you married me, and now you want me to be somebody different? You're damn right you should be different. Yeah. Like, we change each other. If you're not changing each other, then uh, guess what? It's not going to work. I think that as a team, Leia, Han, and Luke, w- of course, with R two T two and C three PO and Chewbacca, like, but but that that those three people make a very interesting team because before Leia, despite like the the general hatred and distrust of the Empire, both Luke and Han could have had entire existences independent of the empire like luke could have stayed on tatooine if you are a poor uh if you are a poor farmer it doesn't matter who's at the top like the shit is always going to roll downhill anyway his life wouldn't have changed that much except for the fact that he desperately wanted you know a more adventurous life i think he would have gone anywhere yeah (laughs) and the fact that he ended up with um Princess Leia, no, the fact that he ended up with R2 uh, aligned him with the Rebel Alliance. I think that he would have probably just gone off to the Academy, Academy, which and he would have probably put on the Stormtrooper suit, (laughs) let's be honest. Then Han, he decided to work kind of in the fringes, like between the Empire and the regular, as a criminal. He was living the good smuggler life. He was Mm -hmm. loving it. So, so both of them ha- could continue their existence regardless of who won, the yeah. Empire or the Rebels. But it was Leia who united them in a vision, and then all of a the sudden, they feel like that was always their purpose. Yeah. And Brad, you mentioned the idea of how they kind of help each other change for the better by Leia kind of bringing Han into this mission. And Han basically kind of 
I'd say taking Leia away from her single-minded political nature. Uh, but one area from more of the extended universe, they kind of show the opposite as well. They are also good at being content with who the person inherently is. Like, they're not trying to change the person. Um, the example being the Bloodlines novel, in which you have Leia, post-Return of the Jedi, um, a little bit before Force Awakens, trying to help with all this political strife. And Han is off doing all this different kind of pro-racing sort of scene. And they both know that each other can't necessarily be tied down to the one spot, and they're content with each other's crazy lifestyle. So they have both the change each other for the better, but not trying to change the person if that kind of makes sense well they recognize the passions in the individual and that's another you know you can't as much as you need to change with your partner you can't also uh force them to change either right and and there are things that you ultimately have to accept um and yeah i think you're right i haven't read that novel um should i is that a good novel it's good. Um, if you're not a fan of the political nature of the prequels, you might not like it, but it is very good. Very good character study. Alone. I actually yeah, love it, the political stuff. So, <laughs> if you, yeah, but it also addresses the one thing I really like about that book. One, it's written by Claudia Gray. But it, it, if you like, it does this really good aspect of like Leia coping with the fact that her father is Darth Vader, and then people finding out that her father is Darth Vader and how that affects her politically. Yeah. Um, and and just like you know her you know her father tortured her how does that you know a- affect her as a person and, and it's she does Claudia Gray does such a good job oh, dude, like discussing that's that such and, an and, interesting and idea because that is so true because like that revelation that could destroy a person to know your dad was space Hitler and then imagine you're a politician and yeah. They, suddenly announced to the world, by the way, her dad, Space Hitler. Are you going to vote for Space Hitler's daughter? <laughs> it was, it's super cool. Um, but speaking of Space Hitler, we got to dive into some of the unhealthy stuff. Here. <laughs> I don't know how that relates to Space that was Hitler. Good, Seemed like a good idea. I feel like that was a pretty good transition there, Gary. You, you tried. Uh, zero to 10, where would you rate the Space Hitler transition? Uh, I- I'm going to give it like a, a solid six. Okay, I can live with that. But... Unhealthy aspects of their relationship. What are some of your guys' thoughts? Uh, I I don't think that they have complementary love languages. And Mm. I I don't think that they have complementary Enneagrams either. And we're going to get into that a little bit. But I don't think that they quite know how to translate for each other how they love each other. And I think that that ultimately is their undoing. Um, especially with um, uh, Han's love language, requires some codependency. And Leia is not a particularly codependent person. Like, there are things that she can do on her own. And he, like, it's hard to express um, love in his way if she's not there. So, like, it's hard to talk about, you know, whether they make it or not without talking about the, the pre the sequels. So, but, like, what 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 ultimately drives a wedge between their relationship is something that the average couple is never going to experience on that level. But there are couples who have tragedy, who do lose a child, and some couples um, come together and work through that tragedy, and other couples 
can't and it it divides and destroys their relationship and i and i think that because han and leia don't necessarily have the most complementary personalities uh love languages because of what they go through with ben solo and uncle luke uh they were not the type of couple that could survive such an insane turn of events. Hmm. I'd add on to that how essentially they're united during the original trilogy because they did have that shared goal of defeating the Empire. They kind of that helps meld them together as a couple. When the Empire is gone, their goals are very div- divergent. Uh, Leia wants to get immersed in this new Republic, and Han wants to keep being Han to some yeah. extent. And so they're only shared together by shared experience, not shared goals. And it kind of takes away a lot of what keeps them together. Yeah, that's an excellent point. It's something I noticed while watching Return of the Jedi today is in that sequence where C-3PO is um, telling the story of what has come before to the Ewoks. And, you know, he's speaking in Ewokese and, and and all the Ewoks are just, I mean, they are living that story. C-3PO is such an, an amazing storyteller and he's got the sound effects and the children are, are ducking when the scary Darth Vader sounds come out. And, and you know, it's, it's a great sequence that highlights the power of narrative and storytelling. And there's a shot where you see Leia lean her head onto Han's shoulder as she's reminiscing what they have all gone through. And she doesn't know Ewokese, but she knows the basics. And thanks to C-3PO's excellent hand gestures and sound effects, she can keep track with the retelling of her story. And you see in that moment for for all of them, and Luke too, who's a little bit off into the corner, but as they're taking in C-3PO's rendition of their story, it's like washing over them, the immensity of what they have gone through. And so to your point, when that story is done, even though no stories are ever done, but when the empire is defeated, when they don't have the shared experience of the empire and taking it down, they now only have each other. And uh, I'm sure there's some deafening silence in in, in between a lot of those post-Return of the Jedi moments. Yeah, absolutely. And that, because the shared experience is still a great bond but not having the shared goal also leads to kind of my other aspect of them the healthy relationship the lack of time together to such a uh, great degree um because some couples might not value quality time we'll get to love languages as much as others but they're getting very little time together and i can see how um even if you're not necessarily a couple that values quality time as much it could definitely wear on your relationship and what's cool, so before the um, we started this podcast, we tweeted out, you know, some name your, some of your favorite moments of Han and Leia, and the Nerf Herder podcast mentioned that those moments in The Force Awakens, you know, are, are some of the best moments of that movie, and, it, you know, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking watching that because you know that, like, we've grown up with these couple, this couple for such a long time, and they like seeing those like moments and knowing they're being away from each other. Like it's, it's some of the best scenes, but it's also some of the saddest scenes. I mean, yeah, I I saw that tweet also. And like that scene is great. And that the chemistry is still there and the spark is still there. Um, you know, the, the glimmer in their eyes is still there. Uh, and even though, you know, now we know everything that went down, 
uh, at that point. But the first time you watch Force Awakens, even though you don't know exactly what tore them apart, you know that they're not together. And that is maybe one of the first real pains of the sequel trilogy to original trilogy fans. And uh, it was just a precursor of things to come for a lot of people. Dr. John Gottman, who's one of our previous love gurus, um, in his love lab, he ran studies where they claim they can predict to a certain degree of accuracy if a couple will stay together or if they will ultimately come apart. And the number one deciding factor in the success of a couple is how they tell their story. If you see a couple tell their origin story and they feel like they've gone through some strife and the strife has made them stronger and they anticipate um, more success and a greater hope for the future, then they will stay together. But couples who tell their story like, we don't know how it's going to turn out, things have um, you know, there have things that have happened where we're still together, but maybe we're worse for it. Like th- a lack of hope in the future is uh, a very strong indicator of a couple that will not be able to continue. And if you think about what they went through with their son and the idea of going like, there's not going to be a happy ending for us because we've already gone through the 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 most ultimate suffering, like um Statistically, it would be very hard for a couple to be able to get get through something like like that. And while at the same time, even after that tragic kind of improbable thing to, for them to get through, you could tell they still love yeah. each other mm, in yeah. the end of Force Awakens, which just adds to the tragedy. Yeah. It's If they went in there and they hated each other or something, you would just have, it's like, okay, it's just the bitter divorced couple. You'd laugh it off. But you, well, you would, or you would you'd be still, super pissed. You'd be angry. Like, it, you'd be pissed. If we watched but The Force Awakens, like, okay, if, sorry, I, I know I'm interrupting you. I apologize. But it, I'm still going to keep doing it because that's what I do. Um, <laughs> if we had totally watched agree. The you'd Force Awakens and uh, they hated each other, you know how angry we would be? But because we see <laughs> that they still love each other, even though they're not together, together like we didn't turn on full rage mode on force awakens because of that and because of that we get just uber heartbroken mm. so basically it's like jj had the choice of pissing us off or just tearing our hearts to the shreds yeah. and he's like let's just tear their hearts to the shreds. yeah i think it was the right move definitely and then he does it more with han's death and i still have feelings over that yeah oh, don't we all <laughs> Okay, so we explored some healthy and unhealthy stuff with them. Let's get into kind of your guys' bread and butter here with a little bit more of the love gurus. To pay homage to our previous episode, check it out, guys. We go over the Enneagrams for for uh, Anakin and Padme. Let's go over Han and Leia's Enneagrams here a little bit. So, Lisa... You're the guru here for us. (laughs) Can you describe, if you had to give a quick blurb on the Enneagrams, how would you describe it to our listeners? An Enneagram is kind of like a a hippie version of the Myers-Briggs test. It's another personality modality that has kind of, it has, it that's built on nine different like almost archetypal personality types. Each, Each one based on an ego fixation, um, 
which is mirrored by um, a holy idea. So everybody, every personality type has a dark side, which would be their ego fixation, and a light side, um, the, the kind of holy opposite of their dark side or their ego fixation. So if I were to um, try to decipher Han and Leia's uh, Enneagram types, I would say that Han Solo is a six. He is a loyalist. So um, a, a sixes are tended to be looked at as the, the skeptics. They have a hard time... Uh, throwing themselves behind a cause. They, they tend to have a lot of indecision. Um, they do things that tend to be self-preservational. They are often looking to, to protect themselves. But once they have found someone or something that they believe in, they tend to be very viciously loyal to that person. I think that... Um, we see that in Han before he meets Leia in his relationship with Chewbacca. And I also think we see that in his relationship with the Millennium Falcon itself. Um, they have been together for so mm. long that he believes in, in them completely, even when he's skeptical of the idea of the force and skeptical of Luke and skeptical of the rebellion at first. He's never skeptical about the Falcon. Never skeptical about the Falcon. <laughs> no. And um, I also feel like that relates to his love language, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> I would say that Leia's uh, Enneagram may be eight which I, might be a controversial choice because eight is the challenger and is tended to be looked at as a little bit of a bully. But eights also help, they, they are bullies for the- um, The cause, the rebellion. The, the, the minority. Mm -hmm. They hate the sight of oppression and they have to fight against it. And I think that that also plays into her kind of bickery, bantery relationship with Han Solo because eights hate being controlled. They hate not being in charge. They, li they don't like to, um, they, they don't particularly like to be um, seen as something other than self-sufficient. Um, so I, I would say that she is an eight. I also think that, um, her love language also relates to her being an eight because, uh, the vice or passion of an eight is lust. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I'm surprised you chose a, an eight for her over like the achiever cause she is a politician, but it makes total sense with her. I like I, you know, she leads the rebellion, but I don't think that she is ever trying to um, delineate herself from anybody else. She likes, she could be a person who stands behind a podium or a desk, but she likes to get in there. She yeah. wants to 
hold the gun. She wants to yeah. be in the in the melee. Like we're told that she's a great politician and in the expanded universe we see more of her being a politician, but in the original trilogy and in the sequel trilogy, well we get more polit- political stuff in the sequel trilogy, but she's still pretty much a general. She in, she likes to be trilogy. part of the team. Right. And it's very different than what we see of Padme in the prequels, where I feel like Padme is very much a politician character, and she's written to be very much a politician character. And she really enjoys the trappings of her royalty. Yeah. Where I feel like Leia, um, she is a very she's dressed down all of the time. And <laughs> when she is referred to as princess, especially, especially by Han, she does, does not, not like, like it. it. <laughs> No, I, I like those. I think those are solid ones and can lead us well into the five love languages. So the five love languages, can you guys, again, we're making Lisa yep, carry please the team do. here. Keep can doing you describe that. the five love languages for us? Um, the five love languages originated in the 1992 book by Gary Chapman. And it's the idea that everybody, every individual has the way they prefer to express love which is all often mirrored by the way people like to receive love. Um, just to use myself and Brad as examples, <laughs> we have actually pretty complimentary love languages. Yes. Um, we both have dual love languages. <laughs> My love languages is words of affirmation. So um, I like to receive love by getting compliments, um, people recognizing my accomplishments, my uniqueness and individuality. I also like to express love by giving compliments, being effusive, recognizing individuals. Um, Also, my other love language is acts of service, where um, I love for a responsibility to be taken off my plate. I did the laundry today. (laughs) I love a favor being done for me. Um, so, Brett, other than words of affirmation, what's your other love language? Uh, I, I mean, I, I thought I only think of words of affirmation uh, being my love language. When we did the uh, like, so the five language, language, the five love languages was the first book that we did. Yeah. On comic book couples counseling, your second one was physical touch. Oh yeah, I mean, well, who doesn't like physical touch? Yeah. So okay, um, uh, not to get uh, too graphic. Not TMI, but <laughs> I mean, like. The love languages, we used that uh, in our first four episodes when we covered Scott Summers and Jean Grey of the X-Men. And I think that that book, I think Chapman's book is pretty problematic uh, for my own uh, personality. But for all the complaints and issues I have with Chapman's uh, underlining philosophy – I think the tools that the love languages gives us have been really helpful. And of all the gurus we've covered over the course of our two years of doing this podcast now, uh, the love languages stands out. And it's one that I return to and Lisa and I return to over and over again. And we use that language when we discuss any couple, really, whether they're fictional or not. Uh, One thing that we did cover it with Scott Summers and Jean Grey is that the five love languages, once you know them, can be used to manipulate people. Yeah. <laughs> so there is also a dark side to the five love languages. Um, but the five love languages are words of affirmation, which is compliments, saying I love you, things like that. Uh, two is quality time, just spending time really intent on each other, 
receiving gifts and giving gifts, which is like giving physical monuments of love. Um, at, then four is acts of service, doing favors, um, that kind of thing, doing work. And then the last one being physical touch. I don't, I don't want to derail this too much, but I think also um, the five love, five love languages like also plays into, uh, if you I think if you take it a little further, like how you apologize mm. or like, work work out you know conflicts not con- like not conflict resolution but um you know are are you when you apologize do you give gifts or yeah you, yeah you know, the, it's definitely it can like, be used like to pacify yeah yeah um yeah. yeah yeah i mean there's been so many times where lisa and i have had um a little bit of a row a little bit of an argument and how do i choose to correct that i'll do all the dishes i'll <laughs> clean the bedroom uh i'll do lots of acts of service and she sees right through that nonsense oh but i love it <laughs> you know don't think that i don't love it and then of course we are both very effusive with um words of affirmation yeah yeah I need people to tell me I'm great. Yeah, so do I. Every single day. We're out on the Twitters going like, do you like me? <laughs> Five-star review well, on iTunes. Please. Thank you. You guys' uh, podcast is great. So oh, that thank feels you. so good. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Justice, do you remember what yours were for uh, the five love languages? Like me personally? or the? Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely uh, physical touch is my number one. And then I think my number two is quality time um and i know my wife's but i am not going to say it on the <laughs> no, that's very that's very that's nice that those two are paired because you know you're going to get your physical touch but then you're also going to get the cuddles right yes <laughs> yeah I, yeah i think i i think i'm the same as you justice so i just like need you to spend time with me and, hold me, and it'll just make me Gary. feel better well the great thing about having a bromance is that since i moved back up we can you know once this whole pandemic thing is done we can just go back to watching nick cage movies together all the time but like for people who <laughs> like quality who need quality time and physical touch in their friendships like their their platonic relationships pandemic time not good it's so sad it's been really rough for no. for me with my friends and for a lot of my other friends like it's 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 been a weird it's a weird Almost two years? No, it's all, it hasn't even been a year yet, Brad. Don't, it's been a weird year. It feels, it feels long. <laughs> well, speaking of like difficulties with the love languages, the challenge is if you have a very different love language than either your significant other or people around you, heck, they've even applied this to work, you can lead to a lot more conflict because they say you don't think they're showing affection, but they're just, they are, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that plays very much, I think, in Han and Leia. And there are right. there are moments, and I think we're going to get into this, but there are moments in the Star Wars trilogy where Han is saying I love you without saying I love you, and, and she's not so, picking it up. And so frustrated that she doesn't see it. Yeah. Well, well, let's dive right into it then. So Han, I think, is an interesting one to start with because he's the only one excluding the uh, Luke and Leia shippers. We don't like them. They're, they're not a part of this. But he's the only one who has two romances within uh, the Star Wars saga. So overall, kind of from the evidence of, say, Solo as well even, what do you guys think are the love languages for Han? I think he's acts of service. 
I think he's acts of service. And if there was a number two, I guess it may be words of affirmation. But I believe he is very strongly acts of service. And I and I think that he values acts of service to such a degree that he has monetized it. He says, my acts of service are so valuable, I am going to be a mercenary. And so when I do something for you, I'm giving you something that has monetary value. I think that also um, explains his relationship with Chewbacca. They have been so, through so much together. They have... Um, done so much for each other that their romance is something that is entirely true. And then I also think that that is why he is so bonded with his ship because he feels like the Millennium Falcon has gotten him through so many scrapes that he feels love from his ship. And as, as we've seen from Solo, you know, the Millennium Falcon has a personality. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why he is so frustrated at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back because he doesn't give a <laughs> about the rebellion. The entire reason he's there is because he wants to, to help Leia. And he's telling Leia, like, he's doing all of these things for her and he's, like, because he's expressing his love to her and for her to go, like, oh, you're just going to leave, are you? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to leave. I have a price on my head. And she says, but we need you. The rebellion needs you. We need you. It hurts him to his very core because he's he's been trying to be indispensable to her, and she does not. She doesn't appreciate. She doesn't hear. She doesn't recognize it. it. He, she doesn't re recognize it as love, but he feels that he is being very loving to her and that he has expressed his love many times. So I took the love languages. Um, two tests today in the mindset of Han and Leia. And I we were talking kind of before we were recording, and I really struggled with Han. And Lisa, I'm going to say I, I messed up with my answers. I, I don't want to... Um, I, I went with physical touches as number one, but I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I think what you were saying um, is more correct. And his number two I went with is uh, at words of affirmation. Mm. Um, and, and so... But I do think that, you know, acts of service and words of affirmation are are very big. I, I was just, I, I don't know why, but I was really struggling with trying to pick out what Han's love languages were because it felt like when he was with um, Leia, like all he wants to do is, you know, physically touch her. But when with he's with other people, like you could see it kind of with Chewie or with the Ewoks, when they touch him, he's like really off and like wants to push them off. So I, I was, I was having a hard time today. I think you could make a case for words of affirmation though. Um, like you, like you mentioned, Lisa, in that bickering scene in Empire Strikes Back, it's kind of like he's trying to pull out of Leia her just to basically mm -hmm. admit how yeah. she feels about yeah. him. It's like he wants to hear that from yeah. her. And like part of it's just he enjoys the bickering, but it's like he needs to hear that. And I also like the idea that Chewie and all his Wookiee speech is just telling sweet nothings yeah. to Han and just garbling <laughs> it in his ear. I, 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 I like the words of affirmation thing because... Of what you know in that Empire Strikes Back hot sequence, you know when he's telling the other general like you know hey I got a price on my head and he's like oh you know a death mark's a hard thing to live with and blah 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 he's like eyeing Leia and Leia is eyeing right back and all Han wants her to wants her to do is to say stay I love you 
I need you. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he wants her to say I, I so bad. And she just can't bring herself to do it. And that's drives him crazy. You, but I think you get that, uh, that fulfillment when he's about to get frozen and, and she says, I love you. And like his response is, you know, it's iconic. And he says, I know. But like when you're looking at it through this kind of lens, it's, it's that like acceptance. Like finally she's stating that like, I am the one that she wants. And then like he, he's, it's almost like he um, personally, I think like he's content with getting frozen because he knows that Leia loves him. If that make, makes any kind of sense. But I also feel like the, I love you. I know is a little bit cursory because they have just had this passionate kiss, which brings me to what I think Leia's love language is. I think that she is physical touch. And she, me too. And she is, because she is all up, especially in the first film, all up in everybody's face. At the end of the film, um, after they have had this really successful battle and she has her boys back with her, she just wants to hold them. She wants to be in contact with them. And then she also weaponizes physical touch because she does what she wants to keep Han at a distance because she is royalty she does have a rebellion <laughs> so she is trying to keep him at a distance so she but so she will kiss luke on the mouth to manipulate to to manipulate han so when he receives that kiss from her in empire in empire yeah. before he's frozen in carbonite no, no no oh yeah 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 okay um when he receives that kiss from her he feels finally this is her confession. That yeah. that kiss was the confession, not the I love you. But I want to get to okay, like those get, weaponizing of kisses, yeah. right? Like so she does kiss Luke in Empire Strikes Back to to jab a dagger into uh, Han's side. Yeah. And she also uses that kiss to encourage Luke in A New Hope. Yeah. You know, oh, here's something for luck. You yeah. know, like, I really need you to save the day here. I need you to make this swing because if you don't, you know, we're all doomed. So here's a little kiss for luck. And I do think that she loves him. You yeah. know, it's, it might not be romantic love, but she loves him. I, I also, uh, just bonus, Chewbacca's love language is also physical touch. I mean, he likes to be scratched. And hugged. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think when oh, when Han yeah. um, scratches Chewie on the head or receives a hug, I think that they have an understanding. But like, they have a love language understanding. Let's be real. If Chewbacca was in your life, you'd be hugging that dude oh, all I the time. I would be up. I would be scratching oh, under yeah. his scruffy chin. Yeah. And he's like, so warm. He sees Leia for the first time in Force Awakens. He just goes in for a biggest hug. And I'm like, I envy Carrie Fisher in that moment. Just getting that little, like, big old chewy yeah, hug. Yeah. If you if you have a teddy bear, you you cannot not use it. Right. Like, it's, it's, it's a, like a mystery. <laughs> yeah, the when, when I took the love languages for Leia, I got 37% for physical touch. And then I also thought acts of service was her second love language because she's, you know, she's got this rebellion. So she... I feel like she feels appreciated when Han or Luke or whoever, um, you know, goes and does something. Like, especially in Empire when Han takes it upon himself to go find Luke. I feel like she was really appreciative of that. And then in um, return, when he, it's revealed that Han is going to lead this squad onto the forest moon of Endor, she's like, oh, yeah, this dude's going to get lucky later. <laughs> <laughs> well, which leads to kind of my struggle with the physical touch one is – Often, I think people write that off as like, oh, that's my love language. And it's like, no, the person just wants to get laid. But there's definitely scenes in there for me 
that show physical touch from Leia that is by no means like yeah. sexual or passionate, just purely yeah. loving. The one that really comes to me is when um, Han de- uh, detaches them from the Star Destroyer and they're going in with that pile of trash to escape the Star Destroyer in Empire. And she just gives him a quick kiss on the cheek. Like there was nothing sexual or, or attraction in that. It was purely just a loving kiss on the cheek. And I thought that part really shows her her need for physical touch. Also, when she was running through the the halls with Luke, they were often just holding hands, just casually holding hands because uh, she needed that physical touch to kind of steady her nerves. Yeah, and when he... Uh uh, you know, has his hand cut off by Vader and is rescued by Lando and her. When he is like healing in that little bed on the yeah. Millennium Falcon, she leans down and gives him a kiss too. Yeah. Like that's how she shows affection. She shows affection by hugs, pats, touches, kisses. And it's not, uh, it's you, like you're right. It, you know, physical touch does not mean you're a horn dog. Right. You know, it, does, it doesn't e- equal lust. Although I think lust is at play with Leia too at times. Though I am heavily prudish, so I am like the opposite end of physical touch. But I still like to get laid every once in a while. TMI, Lisa. <laughs> TMI. Well, well, I also like to go on with that. Like you know, at the end of uh, A New Hope, when you know Han and Luke come in together, like she's in the middle yeah. holding them together as the group is like uh, celebrating, and she's the one that's keeping that like that connection. And and I feel like that's like. You know, it's her way of you know celebrating the them coming together, being uh you know being able pe- being able to be passionate but not be sexual about it. If that makes sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I noticed that scene also where she's like sandwiched. She's like the cream in the Oreo cookie. That's where she wants to be. There are so many jokes. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that to the fanfics. But the one scene that I kind of want to talk about too that I think a lot of fans kind of hate on is in Return of the Jedi where you have Leia, this strong character, this kind of big old bravado in a small package kind of character, go up to Han and be like, hold me. And all the all the nerds look at that and say, okay, this is completely out of character for her. It's completely out of character for this feminist icon. But based off of this, it's really not. No, I, I think it totally makes sense. Yeah, I I first like start I I did feel my like f- feminist flare up when I go like oh no I'm watching this and I and I'm make and I'm noticing that her, of course the woman's love language is physical physical touch and words of affirmation, but like physical touch like you know it's. It's not a gendered thing. It is not a, a weak thing to need to need to be held. And everyone needs to be held at some point or another in their lives. Uh, and not just one point in their lives, probably multiple points in life. Lots of times in your lives you need to be held. You need to give yourself to your other. Um, it, you know, it becomes all the more... Um, significant when it's in a cultural thing, when you have a character like Leia, who is, you know, supposed to be this ultimate badass. So when she does say like, hold me, you can hear the chitters of some audience members. Um, But it never bothered me. It always, it always worked for me. I think it's justified though, when you have the biggest, one of the biggest truth bombs dropped on you and that you're, the, this person that you've been going all these adventures with is your brother. That's yeah, weird. <laughs> and and Darth Vader is you know essentially your dad. Like 
I think there's so many thoughts like flooding through your head. That's why you have that conversation where she doesn't want to tell Han what's going on, but like she also like, but she just needs to be held. And I think like, I think it's very justifiable. Yeah. I, I like, I, I love, you know, I, I agree. I think it's justifiable, but I love the way that Han processes all that information <laughs> at the end of return of the Jedi when he's like, he's getting ready. Like, look, I know you love this dude. I don't know why, but you know, whatever. Um, I'm going to let you have it. Uh, you guys be I happy I just together. want you to be happy. My love for you is true. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very, surprising response from Han Solo in that moment if he thinks that's what Leia wants. I think he's being very mature for who we have known Han to be at this point. But then when she drops that bob, and like Harrison Ford's acting in that scene. It's so good. Like literally incredible. he's like, well, that Luke kid was my only competition and he has been removed from the board. <laughs> Everything is coming what up Millhouse. <laughs> One of the things that I did like in that scene too is the way that like they argue, but then he immediately apologizes, and that stood out to me a lot. Just like the like he knew he messed up in that moment, and like she's going through a lot. Like I need to hear her out, and I don't know. Like when I was watching it today, I was like, like wow, like I really appreciate that he he recognized what was going on in that moment, and like knew that his normal, you know, I guess standoffish self or like brash self like he needed to like calm down in that moment and like kind of hear out his yeah. barriers are he's his barriers come down over the course of the film yeah he's a different han in return of the jedi than he was in a new hope like, like if, a lot if you go from his um from the point of of view of him being an enneagram six and an acts of service like these people have earned his loyalty uh, dozens of times over, and and that changes his behavior towards them. And we haven't talked about this, but we got to remember he was frozen in carbonite for God knows how long, and these people came and rescued him, and they put their lives in danger so he could see sunlight again, so he could stop being a decoration in the Hut's palace. So I, I'm sure he was really feeling the love in that moment. I mean, I think uh, uh, surviving that moment really makes you reevaluate the relationships around you, especially when they put themselves so much on the line for you. And how, uh, yeah, your self-esteem, I'm sure. It's and how great. much your but value is, yeah, as a person. Not only is it a touching moment when they get, you know, when he gets unfrozen and they're like holding each other, but also like, I, like I feel like you were saying like he's a different Han, especially when they're about to, you know, be executed in the Starlack pit. Like I feel like his quick jab, like his jabs or like his humor is, is slightly different and is like, well, like, we got we got so close, guys. Like, thank you so much for trying, but like, like I appreciate it, but like we weren't that successful. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But thankfully, he's next to the most overconfident dude in the galaxy, Luke Skywalker, and he gets him out of there. <laughs> Which is like the polar opposite from the end of five yeah. to 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 six. Like watching it this time, that personality change that occurs between him limping and wounded in Empire Strikes Back to him walking into the palace in full Jedi mode. Like, it is a huge leap in character. And that's why I really appreciate that Charles, they gave Charles Stoll the uh, ability to tell that story in the comics that's going yeah. on right now. Um, they're only on issue 10, but still from like what's the beginning of Empire Strikes Back to now, like you're really starting to see this character growth and I'm really glad they're telling that story finally. I have not read those yet. I'm reading the Darth Vader comics that are currently out and I'm really enjoying those. Those are good. Yeah. Greg Pak is killing He really it. is. So I need to like jump on over and read the Charles Soule stuff because I like Charles Soule most of the time. 
Uh, have you read the Charles Solvater run? I have, and I love. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Uh, yeah, that that one. And the way that incredible. builds all the Vader down, like if you're. Oh if if we want to talk about like the most badass Darth Vader moment ever, it's not Rogue One. It's it is all I'm surrounded by dead men, and he lights his blade in Vader down. Yes, oh, that was so. We gotta give a shout out to a friend of the podcast because we did an episode on Vader down in that whole run. And Pete's and Parsecs, love you guys, but they read the entire run except no! Vader down, which is literally the main reason you read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, Kieran Gillian killed that. Vader down's so good. It's so good. Still love you guys, but Vader down's incredible. But okay, so with these love languages here, I think we got a decent idea. I I'd, I'd want to go into a little bit more Force Awakens because I think with the idea of Leia's love language being physical touch, it makes that first meeting. It adds another layer to the heartbreak of that meeting because you see them like stop tension yeah. apart from each other. They're so emotionally and physically distanced. It just adds a level of heartbreak to it, especially knowing that that's Leia's main way of showing affection. Well, Lisa, I'm also wondering with these knowing these long love languages, like, do you think that their relationship should have worked or could have worked had they not had a you know serial killer um, as a child? I think um, the transition out of rebellion life was always going to be hard for them. If Han did not learn to to express himself in other love languages, because, um, and we saw this in Scott and Jean's relationship as well, that there comes a point in a, with a strong woman where they don't actually need your help. Um, and I think uh, if I'm, I'm going to read between the lines, when their child turned out to be a serial killer, <laughs> evil, uh, went to the dark side, um, I'm sure that uh, Leia as a mother reached a level of devastation where Han could not help. And if a person with acts whose only love language is acts of service or, or primary love language is acts of service cannot figure out how to help, they can't figure out how to, one, express their love, but then they also d don't know how to get that satisfaction of love in return. You yeah. know, they, like part of the satisfaction out of, you know, doing acts of service is you really feel like your love is being received and your love is of value to the other person. Do we know how much time has passed between Force Awakens and whenever uh, Ben Solo and Luke had that night in the hut together? Between Ooh. between Force Weekends and the the hut. Well, no, not the, not like Job of the Hut. Like night, you know, like when when Luke almost killed Ben Solo. When Luke recognized that Ben Solo was being overcome by the dark side, and he went to like light his blade, and then Ben woke up and saw that. And from that moment on, Ben was like full dark side. How much time has happened between that and Force Awakens? Like three years? Like a year? Five years? I know Charles wrote a comic about that, but I'm not sure if they explained the the 
time but it feels between. like some years have gone by, right? Yes, it it does. Feel so like there's some like years have gone by. So based off of a five second Google search here, so you know it's really damn credible. Uh, Kylo Ren turned to the dark side 14 years before the events of. Oh, Force that's a Awakens. long time. That seems like a long time, considering what is it, 30, 33 yeah. years to between me, films. To me, I go like there the hurt of their love ending is probably gone but i think that the distance is just too far yeah you know um yeah and and especially if he's going away and going back to doing his smuggling stuff, smuggling yeah. stuff like that's that's going to create distance because they're no longer working together. He can no longer do acts of service for her. She can no, like the physical touch is impossible because they're in two separate places. I'm sure it just cr- created a chasm. Which the distance then, if her love language is yeah. physical touch, has to be just an incredible drain on mm-hmm. her. Or maybe a drain on both, since you mentioned that he can't do really acts of service from that far away. And, and he does, so like, they slowly. She, she has an entire army to help her with what she needs help in. Like, what more could Han possibly offer from a distance? He could have gone to Kylo and and changed what happened, and he failed. Yeah, like, like I like I, there's so much story in the, that gap of time. Like, don't you want to know what the first conversation was with Luke, Han, and Leia after Ben? Like I want, I I so want to see that story. That's a whole trilogy right there. Well, I feel like Leia slaps Luke, not in like a oh yeah, like a just kind of like I'm like a motherly like how could you? But like I also love you at the same but, time. But oh, also think, I'm physically I'm using physical touch as I, a weapon I, now. I think Smack the your face. anger, and you you get that sense especially from Han in the Force Awakens. The anger that he has towards Luke for what went down with his son is immense. And uh, there's a story there that I would just like to explore. Yeah, I wonder, do you think they explain the anger? Like, does it? do you get a vibe of anger from Han and Leia towards Luke at all? Because I can't think of real so instances So, in The Force that. Awakens, where I hear it and I see it, and I could be projecting, I love to project, it's one of the things that I just enjoy so much, but when Rey is talking to Han on the ship, and, you know, it's like, uh, they, I can't remember the exact line of dialogue, but when Ray learns that Luke is real and Han says something like, like, yeah, I knew Luke. And the way that he says that, uh, knowing mm, what went down like when he goes like, yeah, I know Luke and I effing hate him. <laughs> like I, I like, I get so much <laughs> anger in that moment because how could he not be angry? How could he not be? Luke's love right, language like is words of affirmation, big time. Like th- th- he's like father, like son, because it was words of affirmation that the desire for words of affirmation that turned Anakin to the dark side, and it almost worked on Luke. But then imagine him now with his love language being words of affirmation and seeing himself as a failure, and losing losing his esteem in the eyes of his family. Yeah, it's Han and Leia. Yeah. Like um, right. he's he becomes a very pathetic figure. Right. You talked about how you know Han is a loyalist, and and when you see your best friend, the person who's supposed to be you know the greatest you know Jedi there is at this moment, fail. That's got to be really really devastating. Um, and I 
would change your opinion of that person and, and definitely uh, cause a, a betrayal. And not just fail, but fail you through your child. <laughs> and try to kill, consider killing your yeah. child. Like, there's, there's deep levels. I'd love to see just another canon novel just discussing that weird family dynamic. Yeah, like, dynamic. That's, that's what I want. Like, I, of course, I, I don't want another movie. We would never get another movie, and probably most people don't want another movie about that. But that would be a great book. It would be a great comic book series. I, I'd like I'd like some... Sounds like uh, Brad's got a pitch for Marvel. <laughs> oh, yeah, I always have a pitch for Marvel. Marvel, are you listening? I've got a lot. I mean, it goes second to my pitch of Ghost Rider actually being Nick Cage <laughs> and then doing a whole series on that. Um, I'm still holding out hope for that one of these days. I love that idea. But the only one area, too, of Force Awakens that we haven't discussed that I think is kind of telling for Han. Um, I mean, we've pretty much established that physical touch might not be his main love language. The only time that I really could see it happening is in Force Awakens. He is killed by Ben Solo, and he just puts his hand on his son's mm. face before he dies to his death. Like that was really impactful for me. Thinking, okay, like Justice had Han his physical touch for when he took the little test. Is that possibly something of value to him? I think that he he is a person with intimacy issues, and it and. Uh, I think that him touching his son's face is just, um, you know, just him overcoming this tremendous barrier to do this beautiful, intimate act, I think it just makes it just all the more touching. It's such a crushing moment. It's such a crushing moment. And the test really had a lot of times it was paired between like physical touch and gifts and, and Han's not a gift guy. So like, I think that's why physical touch went out. Nobody was gift I mean, people are- except for uh, maybe Yoda, <laughs> where he's just like, "What objects do you have for me?" Like nobody else seemed particularly interested in objects. I mean, there are the shitty dice there, Justice. Okay, those are some pretty good gifts. <laughs> well, okay. Before we finish this out, let's let's lightning around a few because I, I guarantee you guys have have some here. Jar Jar Binks. Five love languages. Words of affirmation. What do you think? Words of really? affirmation for Jar Jar Binks. Oh my gosh. Hold on. He just wants to be accepted. So yeah, he hears he's the bombad general and he just like freaks out a little bit. I, I could see that. Is there a difference in love languages between Obi-Wan prequels and Obi-Wan uh, original trilogy? You know, it's hard to say. I have, like, I can I can love language Obi-Wan in the Clone Wars and prequels. Love languaging him in the original trilogy is harder. Because it feels like he's transcended love languages. Yeah, he's been alone so long. (laughs) A lot of dry socks. But I mean, like, he's all, there's also, (laughs) there's also um, this idea of, like the almost Buddhist nature of being one with the force where you don't really have needs. That is fair. I mean, like they might need words of affirmation, but they're trying to repress their need for it. I could see that. I mean, I think prequel wise, Obi-Wan Kenobi is probably acts of service. Yeah. Followed by perhaps quality time. Yeah. Quality time. Mm. Maybe. 
I feel act. I think Qui Gon's acts of service. Yeah. As well. I think Padme is definitely quality time. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That kiss. Yeah. Not gifts. <laughs> maybe gifts. Maybe number two. Is I don't gift. know. Acts of service a little bit. Yeah. I guess. I don't think I like. I don't think that she necessarily. She like that's definitely what she likes to do. Like, is she likes to be right. of service, yeah. but really, she just wants to be in the same space as Anakin. Like, there's nothing more valuable than being in his space. Very strange, but I guess that's true. <laughs> You're breaking my heart. <laughs> uh, let's see. We'll go current Ahsoka Tano. What do you guys think based off of Clone well, Wars Well, she's definitely Mando, an Enneagram 8. Um, mm. What? I guess acts of service. It seems so like it seems kind of like a cop out for all of these action figures to be <laughs> to be. I, acts of I service. mean, I think there's yeah. a case to be made. I think she might transcend this a little bit, but especially early on, I th- words of affirmation are important to her. Mm. You know, as a, a Padawan yeah. to Anakin. Um, she is seeking approval. And so when, you know, through the events of Clone Wars, when the Jedi fail her... Uh, I mean, that's she, definitely a nodal event. She's, yeah, she's, she's a different person after, after she, after, yeah. And, and words of affirmation are not necessarily anything she needs or, or desires after season seven or really after season five of the Clone Wars. But do you think that words of affirmation is due to the fact that she has arguably the greatest Jedi master? So she's just trying to live up to this expectation that she needs to be that great. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's fair. I think that's yeah. I I agree. I agree. And for the final of our love languages lightning round, Mando, thoughts on his love languages? I think that his is definitely uh, quality time. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. You go. Either quality time or acts of service, because I feel like when um, when Grogu lifts up that rhino, he's like, "Kid, I'm not dedicated <laughs> to you forever." So, wouldn't it be the most tragic thing ever if it was physical touch? So, I I wasn't going to say it was necessarily physical Ooh. touch, but once he gets physical touch from Grogu, spoilers for the Mandalorian season two, as if anybody listening to this podcast has not watched that. Um, <laughs> But when he gets that physical touch, I could imagine that like radically changing his love languages. Like that's a nodal event in a lot of ways. Like once that helmet comes off, once he gets that little green little claw on his hand, like if if he comes back in the third season and he's like got no armor on whatsoever and he's just bare ass nude the whole time. (laughs) Rubbing faces with people. Yeah. He just wants to rub up. He's become full chewy. But I think to go along with that, especially in that first season, third episode where they're on the planet and there's like he fall like they fall in love. That lady really falls in love with him. And there's that where like he's really I feel like he knows that love language might be a thing that um, might, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, cause him to go astray from his his creed. So he really tries to avoid that. That's a good point. And, you know, you think of him in the flashbacks when he's all huddled up with his parents. Like, he's got to be aching for physical touch. I I completely agree. I think it's physical touch, personally. I think it's the most interesting... of all the weird stuff he did with the Twilight. Yeah. But I think the most interesting love language to give him as a writer would be physical touch. 
John Favreau. But I do think listening? that he sees his company as something very precious, and he only gives his company to people he feels he loves. Well, that's yeah, and and, and I think quality mm. time is. I think your answer of quality time tracks, and the longer he spends with Grogu, the more in love he becomes. Yeah, like the the. The scenes of falling in love are are when they're just sitting in the ship together, and he, and he hands him that little ball to play with. Yeah, and you know when he learns Grogu's name and that bond that they then form around, you know, finally being able to like talk to each other in a weird way. Uh, that you know that's that's another huge event in his romance with Grogu. That's a weird way to say it because I feel like there are five. Yeah, but like uh, I, romance is the, the wrong word. But uh, I'm on a podcast and I've said lots of wrong words today. <laughs> but their bond, their 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 familial. Um, I think that they, I don't think that romance necessarily means sexual yeah, no, energy. Yeah. Like romance oh, no, is yeah. like the what the the <laughs> shit you write poetry about. Well, like you know, like the bromance is a thing, right? And so, the, what's like the f- what's the f- father-son equivalent of romance. Patromance? We need, like, uh, is there not a little adopted green creature version of romance? Gromance! It's Gromance! Gromance! <laughs> Calling him daddy. Oh, I hate you, Justin. I like cementing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, guys, this has been... Great having you on again. Thank you so much for joining us again. Anything today. for you guys. We love spending quality time with you. And it's so funny how, <laughs> like, the last time we were on to talk about the prequels, that conversation made me appreciate the prequels in a way that I had not previously. And I'm not going to say that this conversation made me appreciate the original trilogy uh, in a way that I hadn't previously, because I've already confessed my love for that original trilogy, but it certainly gave me an opportunity to watch it for the 900th time with a new lens. And so I absolutely appreciate you guys for giving us that opportunity. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you guys and comic book couples counseling? Lisa, where can they send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And my love. Yes. Where can I, where can these listeners send their words of affirmation to you? <laughs> uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Um, if you want to explore more of my Star Wars ramblings, uh, I was the guy who did all the Mandalorian write-ups for Film School Rejects, so head on over there. And like I said early on in the show, I'm doing all the WandaVision stuff at Film School Rejects, so head over there and check those uh, words out. And for our podcast, Comic Book Couples Counseling, comicbookcouplescounseling.com. We're uh, on all podcast apps, and uh, we're currently talking about The Vision and Virginia, as seen in Tom King, Gabriel Walta, and Michael Walsh's The Vision 12-issue miniseries. We're going to have a Creator Corner episode dropping next week, where we're talking to artist Mark Jackson of Mark Makes Comics. And then after that, we're launching into a month-long discussion of X-Couples, and our first episode of our X-Couple month is Richter and Shatterstar from Tim Seely Shatterstar miniseries, and I'm super excited to break down that relationship. And if you want to get exclusive with us, we do have a Patreon um, where our latest episode for just one dollar, you can hear us talk about even more in depth about WandaVision. Yeah. 
Well, guys, we're hoping that this hopefully turns into a trilogy and we can get you to talk about the sequels with oh, us. Oh, you know that, that the that third happens. is always my favorite. Yub nub for life. <laughs> 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 but Gary, where, where can uh, our listeners find us at? So you can find us at Podwars Podcast on Twitter or askpodwarspodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your five-star reviews. Send words of affirmation to Justice. He needs to be held <laughs> and told that he's doing a good job. I so love it. So please send that our way. Yeah, it's great. And on that note, have a good week.